Today's scripture is from John chapter 1, verse 19 through 24. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on, whom, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Word of God. Thanks again, Elisa, for reading to us. And uh, hi, New Hope. It's great to see all of you, to be with you once again, to study God's Word, to worship together. Um, uh, you can, if you, if you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you in that rack, and uh, I'd encourage you to grab a copy of the Bible or click open to one in your device, um, to John chapter 1. And if you're going to use the Bible that's right in front of you on the pew rack, I believe John chapter 1 is on page 973, 973. So two weeks ago, we began walking through the Gospel of John. It's a biography, a biography written, it's a biography of Jesus Christ, and it was written by one of Jesus Christ's closest friends, John the Baptist, I mean John the Apostle. Oh my goodness, it's going to get confusing if I start messing up the names. Uh, let's pray, let's stop and pray. Lord, we, we need your help, we need your help, we, we always need your help, and, and this just reminds me of that. Lord, as we, as we encounter your word, we can't do it in our own wisdom, in our own strength, with our own insight. As we come to your word, we need your spirit to guide us. We need your spirit to open up the eyes of our heart so that we can see and discern truth and believe it. So that we can see Jesus and believe in him. So please do that for us, Lord. Please do that for us. May, may the, the, the meditations of all of our hearts and may the words that come out of my mouth, may it all be honoring and acceptable to you, our rock, and our Redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So two weeks ago, we began walking through the Gospel of John, which is a biography of Jesus Christ. It's a story of his life. It was written by John the Apostle, who's one of Jesus' best friends. We call him John the Apostle, by the way, not because Apostle's his last name. 
Jesus didn't call him John the Apostle, he probably just called him John. But we call him John the Apostle because we don't want to mix him up with the other John in the Bible, the one who Elisa just read to us about. That other John is John the Baptist. So we have John the Apostle and we have John the Baptist. John the Apostle is writing to us about John the Baptist. And this guy, John the Baptist, as you may have already noticed from the reading that Elisa just gave us, he's a remarkable man. He, in fact, he's the kind of person that many of us here would long to be. But you wouldn't necessarily want to live his life. It was a short life and a rough life. It ended early. But whether you're a woman or whether you're a man, John the Baptist has the kind of character, the kind of inner life that a lot of us wish we had. Let me give you a little bit of background on, on this guy, John the Baptist. He was a Jewish preacher and a prophet. He was related to Jesus as a cousin. And by the time this man was in his early 30s, he had become a very popular figure. In fact, he experienced a, a whirlwind of growing popularity and influence right around that time of his very early 30s. It's, it, a whirlwind of popularity and influence. I mean... It, Mobs of people were showing up to hear him speak. Everyone from, from common people up to Roman rulers were interested in John the Baptist. He had fame and he had respect. He wasn't just a celebrity. He was someone that people looked at and said, this is a man of honor. This is a man of courage. This is a man of integrity. Let's hear him speak. He was a unique fellow too. A strange guy in some ways. But listen to what Jesus Christ himself says about John the Baptist. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. In other words, it doesn't get any better than this guy. Jesus says he's the greatest of man. How's that for an endorsement? He doesn't qualify, he just this man is great. You've got lots of great people in the Bible. You've got Abraham, you've got Moses. He's speaking to Jewish people who had all sorts of honorable, important, great men and women in their history. Jesus says none of them measure up to this man. But what makes John the Baptist especially remarkable is the way he thinks of himself. Because he thinks of himself, I'm, I'm not really that big a deal. Not really. He has this, this humility and this modesty. Whatever you want to call it, it's not, it doesn't come from shyness. It's not, it's not because of his insecurities. He's not an insecure or shy person at all. For John, this modesty, this humility, it was rooted in a true sense of who he really is. And because he knows who he is, he doesn't crave attention. He doesn't crave validation from other people. And, and instead, he's free to live fearlessly. He's free to live with clear purpose. Who doesn't want all of that? Don't we all crave, desire to live that way? With that freedom, that security, that deep-rooted sense, I know who I am and I don't need to be afraid of anyone. This is what makes today's passage so relevant for, for all of us, really. Because what we learn about John here, it has everything to do with identity 
It has everything to do with self-worth and self-image. Those sound like very current 21st century concerns, but they're actually not just current. They're human concerns, and they've always been human concerns. As humans, we've always struggled with figuring out who are we, who am I, how should I view myself, and why am I here? Those are concerns we all need to think about. So as we think about identity and we think about self-worth, we're going to look at John, and here's some questions we want to answer. One, how did John see himself? Two, why did he see himself that way? And thirdly, why does that matter for us? So why did John see him? How did John really view himself? I think the best way for us to get to know this man is to just read what it says in Matthew 3 about him. I'll I'll read it to you. The very beginning of Matthew 3. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one is crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now here are some details about John the Baptist. It says in verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair. I don't know what a camel hair coat looks like, but he used to wear one. And a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Sounds good, right? Farm to table. Locusts, wild honey. And then it says in verse 5, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So so listen, John's message was a message centered on the coming of the Messiah. He was announcing to everyone who would listen that God's promised Savior was coming. And, And with that promised Savior, the kingdom of God was coming. So his message was repent, prepare. That that means turn around from your current way of life. That's what repentance means. It means turn around. Turn around from that way of life in which you've been living, where you've been serving yourself. You've been building your own kingdom. Turn away from that and instead receive this new kingdom that's coming and receive this Messiah. And if you came to John confessing your sins and you believed his message, he would baptize you in the Jordan River as a sign that you had repented. Now, all of this got Jewish religious leaders thinking, who is this guy exactly? Kind of came out of nowhere. He's dressed funny. He's got a weird, weird dietary habit. You could imagine he was a strange looking fellow. But, but he's gathered this huge following. So in John 1, Jewish religious leaders, they send a delegation of priests This is a kind of fact-finding committee. They send them out to John the Baptist to ask some questions, to talk with John and figure out who he is. Now, on the one hand, they're curious about John the Baptist, but I think there's more than curiosity going on here. There's some intimidation going on here, too, because these guys have power. They have power to affect John's future. They confront John, and they say to him, Who are you? What do you say about yourself? And John responds this way. He says, I'm not the Christ. 
Which is weird, because they didn't ask him if he was the Christ. He says, if that's what you're wondering, I'm not the Christ. I don't claim to be. Which means I'm not God's chosen, anointed Messiah. So they press him a little bit. They say, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And, and what they're saying is, if you're not the Messiah, you don't claim to be God's anointed Savior, who do you claim to be? They ask about Elijah. Elijah's a person who had, been, who had been gone for a long time. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, perhaps the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Interesting fact, he never died. The Bible says in 2 Kings 2 that the, the Lord simply took him up to heaven. And then in Malachi verse chapter 4, it, there's this mysterious prophecy where God says that before the Messiah, before the Savior comes, God will send Elijah or, or, or some kind of Elijah figure was going to come as a forerunner to the Messiah. So people had heard that prophecy. It's a confusing, mysterious prophecy. So that's probably why they asked John, are, do you claim to be the second coming of Elijah? Not to mention, John kind of dressed like Elijah. Elijah used to like the, the, the hairy coats and the leather belts. He was a strange guy, too. I shouldn't say strange. Unique fashion sense, right? It's all good. So then they ask him, they ask John, are you the prophet? And when they're referring here to another prophet that was mentioned in Deuteronomy 18, are you that guy that God promised? And again, John says no. You see, there were these theories floating around about who John the Baptist might be. Some people are saying he's Elijah. Some people are saying he's this other prophet. Some people are saying maybe he's the Christ. Or maybe he thinks he is. People want to know. And, and John wasn't on the radar just for the common people, and not just for Jewish religious officials. He was on the radar of Roman officials, too. Rulers wanted to know. So this is actually a very tense scene. John answers all their questions, patiently, but very directly. In verse 20, what it says there, that's emphatic language. He, he spoke truth directly, without hesitation, it, it, he was prepared to give an answer, right? Some of us are reading First Peter. We're studying that together. It's, it's like as if John knew what kind of questions they were going to ask. He was mentally prepared to give an answer, and he did it. They're getting frustrated, though, because they need to take better answers back to the leaders who sent them. So, so there's one last effort. They say, okay, if you're not any of those guys, who are you, John? Who do you say? What do you say about yourself? And here's how John responds in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John is saying here, here's what he's saying. You want to know who I am? Here it is. And he quotes the Old Testament book of Isaiah. He says, I'm a guy who's preparing the way for someone else. In other words, you're asking me who's John, but who's John isn't the question you should be asking. You should be asking, who is Jesus? Because me, I'm secondary. He's primary. Everything you want to know about me, that's in second place. What you should be asking me is about Jesus. He's in first place. They keep pressing them, though. It says in verse 25, they, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? This is a question of authority. They're pressing in hard here because they're saying, if you're none of those guys, then who are you to be baptizing people? Where, where do you get off doing that? And, and John, again, it's like he's thinking, 
you're asking the wrong question. You're focused on the wrong guy. I'm not the one. You want to know about authority? Jesus is the one with true and higher authority. So look at what he says in verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one you need to know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. I'm not even worthy to undo his sandal, which means I don't even deserve to be his lowest servant, because that's what the lowest of the lowest servants were tasked with doing. He's great, John is saying, I'm not. And the fact that I get to serve him, the fact that I get to witness to him and point people to him, that's more than I deserve. So the question we're asking is, how does John see himself? Here's how he sees himself. He sees himself as an undeserving servant and a witness to Jesus. His, his, his calling is to serve Jesus and point to Jesus. He keeps doing that all through this conversation. It's like he keeps deflecting, pointing. Don't look at me, look at him. Don't care about me. Don't ask about me. Ask about him. Now, some of us might say, if you identify yourself primarily as simply a servant and someone whose job is to point to someone else, then that is a pretty unhealthy self-image. But I think the more we look at this, the more you see that it isn't. In fact, if we were to just stop here, if this is all we had and that's all there was to it, then maybe we'd be right in saying John has a skewed view of himself. But there's more to it. Well, we have to see what informs this view of himself for John. In the next set of verses, I'm going to read from 29 to 34 again, even though Elisa just read them to us. But I want us to listen and get a sense of, of what's going on here. All the attention here is on Jesus Christ. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, that is God who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. All, Paul, all John is doing here is talking about Jesus. He's, we call him John the Baptist because he baptized, but we could have just as easily called him John the Witness because all he does is witness about Jesus. So, so why did John see himself the way that he did? It's all because of the way he saw Jesus Christ. His understanding of who Jesus is completely shaped his understanding of who he is. He can't even conceive of himself apart from who Jesus is. How does he see Jesus? It tells us right there. He saw Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he saw Jesus as the Son of God who gives his spirit. 
He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Son of God who gives us his spirit. This idea of the Lamb of God, it's an image that's there throughout the Bible. From the very beginning in Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation. We see it in Genesis 22, for instance, where Abraham is taking his son Isaac up to, to, to the place to be sacrificed. And, and his son Isaac says to Abraham, where's, where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? What are we going to sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. God will provide the sacrifice. God is going to provide a lamb that will be sacrificed in your place, Isaac, so that you don't have to be sacrificed. Then later on in Isaiah 53, we read this prophecy about Jesus Christ. that It talks to us about the anointed suffering Messiah who would be sent by God and he would be led like a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb before its killers. And then Isaiah 53 goes on to say that that same one who's the lamb going to the slaughter, he's the same one who bears our iniquities, who pays for our sins, upon whom all of our iniquities are placed. And then you fast forward all the way to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, in chapter 5, verse 6, we read there about the lamb again. It's the image of Jesus Christ, the lamb, only now he's already been slaughtered. That's already happened, but now he's on the throne, and he's receiving his people to him, all those people for whom he died. You see, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, this idea of the lamb, it's always the same idea. It's the idea of the pure, perfect one who is sacrificed as a substitute for us. So that we could be forgiven. So that we would not have to die. The Lamb is the pure one who takes our place. John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, that's the pure one who will take our place. That's the Lamb who will take away the sins of the world. Everyone who believes in him will have their sins cleansed away. But John also says, he's not just the Lamb of God. He's also the Son of God who gives us his spirit. And then in the section, he describes something. He describes behind the scenes some things that God had revealed to him. John describes what happened on that day when Jesus Christ himself showed up at the Jordan River to be baptized. And John's like, I'm not baptizing you. You're the Lamb of God. He's got no sins to confess. He doesn't need to be cleansed in the waters of the Jordan. But Jesus insists. He says, no, you will baptize me. And as courageous as John is, and he's a very courageous man, when Jesus says, you're going to baptize me, John's like, yep, I will baptize you. Let's do it. And as Jesus is rising out of that baptism, out of the river, after he's been baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. You can read about it in Matthew 3. The Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. It rests on Christ. And then a voice breaks through the sky and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John says, I know he's the son of God because I heard God himself say, this is my son. And I saw the spirit descend and rest upon him. And God told him, this is the one who's going to baptize differently from the way you baptize. John, you were called to baptize with water. This one's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is the Christ who gives the spirit of God to all his followers. Who, who, who gives us his spirit to be present with us and in us, to fill us. 
So that's why John's attitude is this. He says, I, I baptize with water. I, I, can, I can dunk you in the water to symbolize some kind of inward reality. But this Jesus, he can create that inward reality. John says, I'm secondary. Here's what I mean by that. When I say John believed that he was secondary, I'm not saying that John believed that he was unimportant. I don't mean that. I mean that his identity was secondary in this sense. His identity flows from what is primary. Jesus' identity is primary. That's the starting point. And once John realized who Jesus was, then he could understand who he was. And the same is true for us. When we in the first place see who Jesus is, then we can have our own sense of identity shaped. I love the way it says this in, in John 1, verse 6. We read this um, a couple of weeks ago, but we didn't really even stop here. We didn't even pay attention to it. But I want to go back to this and just read this. John 1, verse 6. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, listen, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. But then it says this, John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He wasn't the light. His job was to just point people to the light. And this is freeing, wonderfully liberating. This is real identity and real purpose. This, and, and the kind of courage that John has, it was just a natural product of an identity and purpose rooted in Jesus Christ. Because he knows Jesus, he knows himself. And because he truly knows himself, he can live with courage, with integrity, with fearlessness. Why does this matter to all of us? Here's why it matters to all of us. You need to see Jesus for who he is if you're going to see yourself for who you are. You are secondary. That is not a put down. You are secondary and that's a great place to be. Your identity flows from he who is primary, the lamb. You see, let, let, think about it this way. If you know him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then what does that say about you? That says, by believing in him, then I'm a forgiven one. My sins have been washed away. Someone has died in my place. So I'm not the condemned one anymore. I'm not the guilty one anymore. Now I'm the righteous one. I'm the forgiven one. I'm the accepted one. But how do I know that? Only because first I know who Jesus is, the Lamb. Once you know him to be the son of God, what does that tell you about yourself? Once you know Jesus to be the son of God, that tells you so much you need to know about yourself. It tells you that if you believe in him, if you had faith in him, then you too will be a son or daughter of God. His relationship to the father becomes your relationship to the father. And you can rest in that. You can breathe easy in that. But you will not know that about yourself unless first you know that he is the son. We saw this last week or the week before. John the Apostle says, 
that to whoever, whoever received Jesus, whoever believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. That's identity. A child of God. And that identity becomes yours if you know him as the son. Jack Miller, who's a, um, a teacher that some of you may know, um, really influential for many years, um, very influential on some of the people that, may, that you may find influential. Um, for instance, some of us have been influenced by the ministry of Tim Keller, for instance. Um, Jack Miller was very influential in the life of Tim Keller and a lot of what Tim Keller teaches actually echoes a lot of what Miller talks about. In any case, Jack Miller talks about the fact that many of us, even though we know God as Father, at least theoretically, we can walk through life with what he would describe as an orphan spirit. He says we can walk through life feeling like we have no parent at all. We can walk through life feeling like we're on our own. We can walk through life feeling like if I have any relationship with God, it's not the relationship of a loving father towards a beloved son or daughter. But when we come to know Jesus as the true son of God, then what? We can enter into that relationship with the father as well and live in the security of knowing. Just as he would say about his son, my beloved in whom I'm well pleased, the father will say of you, my beloved, I'm well pleased. First Peter 4.14, I'm going back to first Peter because we've all been, a lot of us have been studying it. First Peter 4.14, I can't, I'm not going to quote it, I'll just paraphrase it. It says that we as, as, as Christians, um, the Spirit of God has rested upon us. The Spirit of God has rested upon us. That sounds very much like what happened to Jesus in the river when he was baptized. And the Spirit comes and rests. If you know Jesus as the one upon whom the Spirit came and rested, then you too can know what it means to be one upon whom the Spirit comes and rests. So why does this all matter for us? It matters deeply. Because you need to see Jesus for who he is if you're going to see yourself for who you are. And, and the flip side of that is this. If you're without seeing Jesus for who he is, you'll never see yourself for who you are. And sadly, this is true for many of us who have been following Christ, who know Jesus, and yet we've lost sight of who he is, or we continually lose sight. And so sadly, we see ourselves in this way that's not shaped by how we see Jesus. In other words, so many of our problems, they start here. Your identity is not rooted in him. And God knows this is a problem. This isn't a current 21st century problem. We make it worse in lots of ways. Technology doesn't help. All kinds of things don't help. But people have been struggling with this from the beginning of time. Having an identity rooted in something other than our creator, savior, God. And God knows this. That's why the Bible over and over again reminds us of who we are. I mean, how does 1 Peter start? He says, you guys, who I'm writing to, you are elect, you are chosen exiles. I'm going to tell you who you are. You're chosen by God. You're, you're, what does he say? He says a, a, a royal priesthood, a community of God's worshipers. Why does God tell us who we are over and over again? Because he knows we lose sight of it over and over again. And we continually place our identity, we build an identity on things other than who Christ is. 
Now, there's, there's, I want to share with you two ways that I think we, we, we let this go wrong in our lives, two ways that we go astray in this. There are many others, no doubt. There are many other ways. Um, I'll let you think about that. But here are two ways that I think may hit home for many of us. Because our identity is not rooted in Christ, or at least we don't see it that way, we try to build an identity on other things. Here's one result. You put undue pressure on yourself and you take undeserved credit for yourself. You put undue pressure on yourself and you take undeserved credit for yourself. Here's what I mean, and this is especially significant for people who are involved in any kind of ministry. And I don't mean official ministry. By ministry, I mean you serve others. All right, so maybe it's ministry within the church, maybe it's a, a discipleship group leader or a care group leader, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a counselor to others, someone who's seeking to disciple others. When we're not rooting our identity in Christ, we tend to develop what some people call a savior complex. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves and we think, I am the only hope in this person. This person who I'm serving, maybe it's my child, this person who I'm seeking to help and, 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 and cultivate and, and disciple, this person maybe who's in crisis and I'm trying to help them out of it, I'm trying to rescue them out of this, we, get, we develop the savior complex and we say, I'm this person's only hope. It's like we want to be the hero and we feel like if we don't do it, who else is going to do it? I got to step in here and be a hero to this person. I got to be their savior. So we want to help. We want to fix. We want to rescue. And we also want the credit that comes along with that. And when we do that, when we succeed, there's this jolt of joy, but it's fleeting. The results ultimately are never good. Because even when we feel like I've succeeded in being the hero, I've rescued this person, I did it, I stepped up and I helped. I taught my kid the lesson he needed to learn. I raised him the way I should have. What, what happens? We start to grow like this arrogance, this self-righteousness that says, why can't other people be as good as I am in this? You see, I've seen this in ministries. I've seen this in big ministries. Um, I see a little bit personally, but most I've just seen news of it. People with, with, with um, significant gifts and abilities, they develop successful ministries not unlike John the Baptist. They start to think they're really special. They stop listening to other people. They lose accountability. And they go off the rails. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ as Lord. But when our identity is not rooted in Christ, and even when we think we're preaching Christ, we're doing it in such a way that we're actually trying to rescue and save and change on our own. And so ultimately what we're doing is kind of propping ourselves up as saviors, as rescuers. I have seen this happen on the big scale in ways that have ruined churches. I've also seen this happen on a much smaller scale in my own heart. And I was convicted of this even recently, not just by God's word, but I was, I was convicted, I'll be honest with you, I was convicted by God's word, I was convicted by Alex's word, because <laughs> this brother started telling me about some stuff in his heart, and, and I had been reading this, and I'd been thinking about this, and my heart was just opened up before me, and I saw, I saw 
that what I was doing was putting undue pressure on myself and I was also seeking to take undeserved credit for myself. It's a lot of pressure, isn't it, to feel like you're the savior of your kids, of your spouse, of other people? When things go well, you get the credit, but how about when things go badly? You are crushed. And, and so what happens is we start to fear that we're not going to be strong enough to save this person. We're not going to be strong enough to help or to rescue. So, so we, we develop this deep anxiety and, and hopelessness and, and fear. Or, or we get frustrated. We get really angry when other people don't appreciate our efforts to help. Or, or they, they, they don't respond to our efforts to help. For some of this is a big deal for some of us. A regular struggle we need to hear we need John to come and tell us listen you're not the light you bear witness to the light I need to tell I'm not the light bear witness to the light and even when I bear witness to the light I don't do it the way I should but guess what the success of the light is not contingent on me bearing witness perfectly the success of the light is not contingent on you being the perfect witness instead God overcomes, he rescues, he saves, the light shines in spite of and often through our failures to bear witness the way we should. I was reminded of this um, almost exactly a year ago, a little less than a year ago, we were in Namibia on a missions team, a missions trip, and um, Sharon, I'm I'm sorry to be bringing up your family so much, I didn't intend to do this, but... um, uh, Alex's wife, Sharon, we were walking through um, a, uh, a town, favela, I call it favela because that's what we call it in Portuguese, but it's a, a, um, a, squatting, a squatter's community, right? I forget what they call it in Namibia, but in any case, we're walking through this place called um, Havana, and, and Sharon shared something that, w- that really res- res- resonated with me because I was thinking the same thing. She's saying, we walk around here and we see all this need and we realize that we can't do anything. We, the, what we can do is so minuscule. And we feel so limited, and we feel so weak. I said, yeah, that's the way I feel. And in that moment, you know what I needed to hear? What I needed to remember? You're not the light, you just bear witness to the light. You don't have, you are powerless to affect change and to rescue, but the Spirit of God is not powerless. The one who you claim to be pointing to, he's not powerless. He was at work before you got here. He's going to work through you, and he's going to be at work after you're gone and you're back in Westchester. As you lead, maybe in your home or in the workplace, you raise your kids, you seek to disciple others. What would it look like if you did all of that, if all of it was shaped by who Jesus is? What would it look like for you as parents? Let me ask you as parents, what would it look like for your identity as a parent to be firmly rooted in Jesus Christ? John could openly say, I'm not the one. I'm not the one. It's not in me to usher in the kingdom of God. It's not in me to effect repentance and faith in the lives of these mobs of people that are coming to me. But there's one among us. I'm not even worthy to untie a sandal. But he is able to effect repentance and renewed faith. He is able to transform 
And so John, he does his work diligently, but there's like this lightness, this freedom about him. It's awesome. This joy. He can do his work and go home and sleep at night. He doesn't shrink back. You know, we saw this a little bit in Joseph when we were studying the story of Joseph in Genesis. There's this point where Pharaoh comes to Joseph, asks him to do this miraculous, unbelievable thing, and Joseph says, it's not in me. Can't do it. But rather than shrinking back from the task, he actually steps forward into it. He continues leading. He continues serving. And he's free to do it courageously, without anxiety, without fear of failure, because he realizes it's not in me to begin with. No expectations. God can do it. Let's see if he will. How, how freeing is that? What would it look like for, for us to go through every challenge that we face in life, especially as it comes to leading and serving others, to operate in that kind of freedom? That we'd be willing to take risks that we are unwilling to take. We wouldn't be putting undue pressure on ourselves, and we wouldn't be scraping up as much credit as we can get for ourselves. We'd say, I don't get the credit. I don't need the credit. God gets it. Lastly, here's another way that I think this goes wrong in our thinking. When, when we don't root our identity in Christ, here's what happens. Rather than serve people and point them to Christ, you try to get validation and worth from them for yourself. Rather than serve people and point them to Christ, you try to get validation from them and get worth from them. Here's what I mean. If, you're, if your sense of identity is not rooted in who Jesus is, it's often going to manifest itself in a deep insecurity. And that insecurity is going to drive you. It's going to drive many of us. It's going to look different in different people, but for many of us, it's going to look this way. We're going to look to people to tell us who we are. If our identity is not rooted in Christ, we're going to look to other people to tell us who we are, to tell us we mean something, to tell us we're important, to tell us we're accepted. So if people see me as good, then I'm good. And I feel good about myself. But not really, not really, not in any stable way, because there's always the fear that they won't keep seeing me that way. So I have to work hard to maintain their view of me. And there's always a suspicion that, that not everyone, not everyone that's important to me is really going to see me the way I want them to see me. It's unstable. It's a ruinous way to live. I, I say ruinous because it ruins your ability to have any kind of stable peace. But it also ruins your ability to relate to others in the way God has called you to relate to them. You can't serve people when you're seeking to build an identity based on their view of you. You can't serve others and witness to Christ because you don't see that as what your, that's not what your relationship becomes about. Your relationships to others become about you. You engage others in order to build your own self, your own sense of self-worth. You, you help others and engage others in order to get the feeling of validation, of approval. For some of you, that means that you'll manipulate others in order to get them to think highly of you. For some of you, you're going to let others manipulate you in the hopes that they'll think highly of you. 
You will bend over backwards for them in order to get that sense that you're approved of and you're worthy. So so much you might bully others. Others of us, we may just allow ourselves to be bullied. But either way, you see, you're still using people to help build your sense of self. Even when it looks like you're serving them, you're really serving yourself. And you're not free to truly serve them as a witness to Christ. It could be your family. It could be colleagues. It could be the voice in your own head that you're constantly trying to get approval from. Either way, it's ruinous. And if you know what I'm talking about, if what I'm talking about sounds familiar to you, then you know it's ruinous and you hate it about yourself. You see it and you hate it. So what's the solution? What's the solution? How do we break out of this recurring pattern of building our identity on things other than Jesus Christ? I want to point you to what Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. He says these words. I'll read them to you. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul reminds me of John the Baptist here. Because he's talking to people and he's saying, what you say about me doesn't really matter. It matters a little, but not that much. In fact, what I say about myself doesn't even matter that much. Your judgment of me, even my own inner mental judgment of myself, not really important. He's reached this place that that, that John the Baptist seems to have reached. I read that, I'm like, I want to be like that. How did he get there? Read verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 4. He says, this is how one should regard us. This is how you should view me, he says. This is how I view myself as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. How do I view myself? 100% in the light of who God is, in the light of who Christ is. I am secondary He is primary. Because I see him as Lord, because I see him as king, because I see him as father, I can regard myself as simply a servant. I'm not his son. I'm his child. I'm just a steward of what he has given me. The pressure's off. What you say about me doesn't matter. What I say about me doesn't matter. How did John the Baptist get to this place? I'm sure he had to fight. I doubt very highly that John the Baptist was coasting through life, feeling the sense of freedom and courage and lightness. I would bet that he was constantly having to fight for this. Because as the mobs come to be baptized, there's going to be that constant temptation to say, I'm doing something pretty special here. And to start to place his identity in the size of the mob. The mob's not as big today as it was yesterday. What does that say about my self-worth? I baptized... 60% fewer people today than last week. What does that say about my self-worth? You see, you must have faced that constant temptation. Or when people come to question them, who are you? Who do you say you are? There must have been the temptation to make something of myself. Who am I? I'll tell you who I am. He had to fight. He had to constantly fight to find his identity in the one that he was called to witness to, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The same thing for us. He's not Superman. John the Baptist is just a guy just like you and me. He gives this advice to us. This is how, this is how you can live with a secure sense of self and the freedom 
and courage that he exhibited. First of all, repent of your efforts to get an identity on your own. Repent of your efforts to build an identity off of other people and what they say about you. Remember, John the Baptist's message was a message of repentance, right? I think he knew repentance personally. I don't think he just preached repentance. I think he walked it out. And part of what he's calling us to repent from is building our identity and all this other stuff. John's advice to us is very simple. He's saying, listen, behold the Lamb of God. Look at Jesus. I'm unworthy, but behold Jesus. I can say to myself, I'm unworthy, but I can still behold Jesus. Whenever you find yourself faced with the question, who are you? Push back with this primary question, who is Jesus? And the answer to that question will shape your response to who are you? Later on in in this gospel, John the Baptist will say these famous words. He will point to Jesus Christ and say, he must increase, I must decrease. He needs to get bigger, I need to get smaller. I think he's giving, I don't know if he knew he was doing this, but he's giving us some life advice here on how to stop living with anxiety and fear of others' opinions, how to stop building our identity on other people and their responses to us and their view of us. He's giving us wonderful life advice. He's saying, here's how you do it. He must get bigger, you must get smaller. Stop obsessing about how others view of you. Even, even stop obsessing about how you feel about others' view of you. And behold Jesus. Listen to his word. As the spirit communicates to you, as the spirit affirms in you again and again, you are a child of the Father. You are a child of God. We see this in John. He's like this amazing balance, this tension of, he's like a lamb in the sense that he's meek, but he's like a lion. He's so bold and so courageous. Don't don't you want to live like that? Like this humility on the one hand, this boldness on the other, meekness and strength. Here's how we get it. We stop looking at ourselves. In fact, we don't even look at John. We look past John. We've done enough looking at John today. We look past John the Baptist and we behold Jesus, the lamb and the lion. The perfect, perfect balance of meekness and strength personified. And the Bible promises us that to behold him is to become like him. I invite you to pray with me. Lord, take our eyes off ourselves and place them fixedly on you. As we come to this table to take your supper today, may it be an act of repentance, Lord. Help us to turn away as we turn to the bread and the cup, which symbolize your body broken, your blood spilled. As we behold you, Lamb of God, in this ordinance, let it be an act of repentance so that we would be turning away from every other effort to build an identity and a sense of self-worth and a million other things. We ask it in Jesus' name.